Hey there, welcome to the Pine Island Experience Podcast. I'm Joanna Anderson with my husband, Trigvi. Each of our episodes will be conversations with fellow Pine Islanders. The goal of our podcast is to share with you our experiences, what we have found to be fun, and what makes the Pine Island Experience so unique. wanted to go to Florida. We didn't really know where exactly. We thought about the Cocoa Beach area, but then I remembered Sanibel Island. We, My husband and I had a condo in Sanibel for a little bit in, in the late 90s. And I said, well, what if we went that way? I remember Cape Coral. And then eventually through realtors um, asking us what we wanted you know, what we were looking for, we found Pine Island. And it's the perfect spot for us because I find Fort Myers and Cape Coral to be very suburban, whereas this is still very old Florida. And the pace is what we wanted. And so this is where we ended up in St. James City. That was Joanne Lembo, our good friend, neighbor, and guest this week. Joanne is a great example of Pine Island Strong. She enjoys helping others because it brings her purpose. Right after Hurricane Ian, she dedicated her time and used her experience to help Islanders navigate FEMA, the Red Cross, Unite Florida, and other organizations that were aiding hurricane survivors. And now, here is Joanne. Well, welcome, Joanne, and thank you. We're so honored that you're here today. We're glad you're our first guest after, since 19, or 19, no, since 2020. It's not that bad. We were wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Well, my name is Joanne Lembo. And originally, I am from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We moved around a lot because of my job. I worked for the federal government. So it's been a while since I've actually had any residence in Pennsylvania. Um, So we came down to the Georgia area. That's what kind of brought us down here. And we lived in Savannah first. And then we moved to Darien, which is about an hour south of Savannah. It's like an old shrimping village off of um, St. Simon's Island and Jekyll Island. So when it came time for me to retire, my my husband, who has already been retired, we decided to come down to Florida. Uh, My background, I grew up in Pennsylvania. I wanted to get into radio. That was my first thing. I wanted to be like a newscaster and ended up in law enforcement. So it kind of took a twist. The times in in, um, on the radio was fantastic. I learned a lot, but there was a time when I was divorced and I was a single parent. My daughter was about nine months old, so I had to get a real job that really gave me a good salary, good benefits, and I started as a probation officer in Beaver County, Pennsylvania, and I did that for about three years, and someone told me, you know, you could make more money as a state parole officer, so I went downtown Pittsburgh, looked for the state building, Ended up at the federal building, and I took a test there, and that's how I got to work for the federal government. And my first job with the federal government 
was with the Immigration and Naturalization Service, which no longer exists, but I was an inspector. And that job entailed working at all ports of entry, uh, airports, seaports, land borders, train stations. And I started at the Pittsburgh International Airport with international flights. And that's when I just took off. It, I went down to the southern border in California. I worked at the Seattle seaport in Washington State, came back. It was, it was hard to be on your own being a single parent. Um, because the hours that you worked, you worked a lot of shifts and you did a lot of call outs. So came back home to Pittsburgh, went back there and then opportunities just started opening up and I got promoted several times, um, did a lot of overseas work and yes, it was, it was phenomenal. It was a big growing experience. The embassy at Ottawa was huge because I was scared to death because of I had an ambassador that was really good friends with President Bush and very is the first political arena that I went into and I got to know him. He was pretty phenomenal. And so I did work there and that opened up a lot of doors for me meeting people um, because I was tracking terrorists and that was one of my biggest jobs was tracking terrorists across the northern border. And I learned a lot about politics. I learned a lot of mistakes that I made when I was there because being political is an art and they know everything about it. I tended to be kind of honest and not, not that politicians aren't honest, but you don't speak the way that I spoke and not have ramifications afterwards. So, and then from there, everything just took off and I worked well, we changed to Customs and Border Protection after 9-11, and I worked back on the southern border. I became a port director, and then my last years, I worked at our academy in Brunswick, Georgia, as a training person, um, the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, and that's when I got to go overseas, and I got to do a lot of international work, and then when it came time to find a place to live after retirement... We knew we wanted to go to Florida. We didn't really know where exactly. We thought about the Cocoa Beach area. But then I remembered Sanibel Island. We, My husband and I had a condo in Sanibel for a little bit in, in the late 90s. And I said, well, what if we went that way? I remember Cape Coral. And then eventually through realtors um, asking us what we wanted you know, what we were looking for, we found Pine Island. And it's the perfect spot for us because I find Fort Myers and Cape Coral to be very suburban, whereas this is still very old Florida. And the pace is what we wanted. And so this is where we ended up in St. James City. Wow. That's a great story. It's a good thing that you didn't go to the state building then, that you went to the federal building. Well, that was meant to be then, right? It's pretty funny. You know, it's funny when you think about it. Like I, I walked in there and I said, well, this is close enough. Federal, state, what's the difference, you know? And yeah, it, it my career was very eye-opening. I grew up a lot. I never thought I would do the things that I did. Um, carrying a gun, learning how to shoot. I, I, do, I didn't grow up with that in my life. My, my parent, my dad wasn't a hunter. 
I, I didn't grow up with that. So for me, it was like learning from base. And I was actually 31 when I started, which is really kind of old when a lot of kids were coming out of college or military and, and getting in, you know, in their 20s. But I had a great career, learned a lot, saw a lot, um, opened my eyes a lot because I think I grew up very sheltered where I came from in Pittsburgh. And I, you know, it's funny now when I look at things, how, how different I look at things. And maybe that's not a good thing sometimes, but you kind of, it's a jaded kind of thing in a sense, um, but it's a realistic. Sometimes I wish I didn't have it because I look, I look down that road first, but it, it was great. It was a great career and I would have recommended it for anybody, especially women because it was a very difficult thing, still is, for women to um, excel in. Even after all the strides that women make, it's still a glass ceiling there. And you, you, I always had to try more. I always had to be better. I became their first firearms director at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center. From not knowing anything about right. firearms, you became the director. And not even wow. a good shooter. I was not a good shooter. And then I learned. And then when I supervised all these firearms instructors, they taught me so much. And that was a big part of being a supervisor is learning. And I was the first female there. And I think that that helped a lot because a lot of women were afraid of weapons and a lot of women failed out because of that. So I think I added a little bit more because when you're a good shooter, you know, you don't really think about a person's weak spots because you're so good. Sometimes you just can't do it. So I would watch and I would kind of rein them in and say, maybe you should talk to her about this or that. And yeah, that's how we worked it. But yeah, it was, a, it was a great career. I'm, I'm very lucky that I got to do and see what I did. In all these places you worked, mm -hmm. did you move there? Or did you stay in Pittsburgh and travel there or both? Both. Uh, some places you had to relocate. Okay. That's some tough. places were, yeah, it was. And even there are some places that you did details or TDYs, they called them. And I was gone for about a year and a half one time, which was difficult. I had since remarried. And of course, my husband still had his job. My daughter was in high school, but they both understood. And I went and I just went from spot to spot, you know, to get experience, you know, so that I could be better or I could promote out because you can't, you can't stay in one spot and be effective as far as I was concerned. I mean, you can stay in a spot, but I don't think you're as effective. So the biggest things that I really appreciated was the overseas travel because there's no way in the world I would have done that without working for the government. There's no way. In the world. Right. No way in the world. No true. way in the world. No, because amazing. it was amazing. Um, I get very, it's funny, I get real emotional when I talk about Africa because I was there three times and it's just an experience that I think people have to do. I can't even explain it. It's just, I don't know. You just have to see it to believe it. It's, it's an unbelievable experience. So I'm very grateful for that. If we can circle back just sure. a little bit, 
I've always been interested in what they don't teach you in school and how that applies overall to business. So please don't say anything that you can't or shouldn't about politics, but maybe you can discuss some of the uh, the learning curve and how you adapted to navigate through politics. Right. So I had some law enforcement experience being a probation officer. So when I ventured into the federal level, it was much different because the eyes on are different than local politicians or local officers or local people because now you're dealing with consulates and you're dealing with embassies and you're dealing with lawyers and you have to learn how to interview correctly, how to record that interview uh, because they're going to look at your paperwork. I mean, if somebody travels 10 hours to come to some place and you know that they can't enter the country and you're going to bar them, you're going to tell them, no, you can't come in today. You have to be able to articulate, you know, reasonably, you have to talk about why you're doing it. You have the power. You definitely have the power, but you have to say, this is why. And I had a very good supervisor when I first started in Pittsburgh and my interviews back then, we didn't have computers. So everything was handwritten. And he did a lot of corrections in my summaries because this paperwork was going to be sent to whatever country these people were from for an officer to review. And you can't come across, you know, not with, with, without basis. And that's one thing I really learned. It didn't matter what I felt. You can feel something. You can think that something isn't right but you have to base it on articulable fact. And that was a big thing that I learned. Um, that was when I first began. And then I, I actually entered into interviewing refugees and I did a lot of um, international students in schools. Again, you have to find why you're doing what you're doing. And I worked with a lot of good attorneys a lot of immigration attorneys that were willing, you know, because we're on the opposite end of the spectrum, to teach, you know, what you need to know. So, yes, I would say my school, my college didn't really give you all the skills. It gave you some, but it didn't give you all the skills for the real world and, and the politics, because there's politics everywhere and, and every job that you do, you know. Uh, and I tell my daughter this the same thing. It doesn't matter what field you get into. There's a way that you speak with people. There's a way that you communicate with people um, for you to get what you need and what you get done. And, and there are many times in my job, especially as a port director, when you get to that higher level where you want to do something, you know what's right, you know right from wrong, obviously, but you have a whole cavalcade of people above you uh, in Washington, D.C. with eyes on. So you have to find a way to do it correctly, but you still have to do it because it's the right thing to do. It's not always popular. You have to be very strong. And I, that was the other thing, too. I, I think you have to get that strength. You have to get that clarity and lose that fear. And, and you have to know your thing for it to be done correctly. And that's something that isn't taught. That's something that you gain through the years. 
considering all that work, this may be a shorter answer. Did you have a time for hobbies or other interests you were developing along the way? Given the pressures that were very time consuming, especially being gone at 18 months at one stint, but did you have any downtime outside of work? Well, I used to really love to run. I don't run anymore because my knees are shot, but I used to love to run. I It helped me clear my head. And when I had time to be outside, that was my favorite, to run outside. I didn't like to run inside in a gym or anything. However, to your point, working as many hours as we did, and when I worked at Pittsburgh International Airport, we actually developed um, a program and it was a health improvement program and you could participate and you were allowed to have so many minutes a week to work out in your off time on duty. So uh, we had a gym, we had a small little gym, but I also ran the hallway. I ran from when the passengers came out of international down to the custom side and I would just run when I had time because it does release your you know, stress it does give you some clarity if you're working out a problem. So that was one of my major things I like to do was run. Um, other than that, I had my daughter to take care of. You know, I had a lot of things that I had to do. It was hard to develop hobbies. You know, there's so many things that you have to work on when you're an officer. You know, shooting was another thing. I had to, you know, make time to be proficient because we qualified four times a year and you don't want to lose your weapon. You can't lose your weapon, so. How did the eating go? As someone that traveled long hours or the travel itself, you don't sit down for meals at the same time every day. I personally did a lot of junk food. You just end up grabbing food whenever you can get it. Well, and you're, you're right, especially with our job, we really didn't have a lunch hour, per se. We didn't even have really a lunch half hour. We took the time when we could. So not to fall into that trap, because at airports especially, it was very, very easy to go anywhere and get anything. So I would bring something from home. I'd bring a salad. I'd bring soup. I'd bring something. And then we had microwaves and things that we could make it in. But yeah, that is, that's a hard thing not to fall into. And especially when you worked in the midnight shift, it was horrible. Because nobody wanted to, I mean... I hated midnight shift because all you wanted to do, I wanted to sleep. I, I, I never really um, got into that shift. A lot of people did, but it really throws you off of everything. So no, I kind of ventured away from that because you couldn't. A lot of people did. A lot of people gained a lot of weight, developed some habits that weren't healthy. Um, drinking was a huge thing to bring yourself down or, or relax that that was always accepted no matter what they called it choir practice. And, you know, after working 12 hours or 14 hours, instead of just going home and going to sleep, maybe you go home and have a glass of wine or you have a glass of beer or you have a hard alcohol, whatever the case is, alcoholism was high. And, and that again, went with the stress and the hours of the job. Um, smoking was a big one, you know, because it's just your way of however, you know, coffee drinking was huge. So yeah, you can fall into that trap. And I remember I had a port director when I was early on and he said to me, 
be careful when you, you know, as you go up in your career, because, you know, drinking, smoking, eating bad and um, divorce was another thing that was very, very high among officers because a lot of times they were away from their families. A lot of times they spent more time with people, you know, wherever they were. And that was especially true at the academy because the academy, your basic training is six months long and you are living away from home and your your family doesn't come with you. So, so you've mentioned your progression from uh, Pennsylvania to eventually Pine Island. When did you actually arrive on Pine Island? We actually physically moved October 2019. We had sold our house in Georgia in August of 2019. And we hadn't closed yet, so we came here to look for a house. <laughs> we had been looking, but we hadn't bought anything. So we came here, went under contract, went back home. And I remember the first night I was home, my realtor in Georgia called me and said, you're not going to believe this. The couple that you know, it's under contract with your house here in Georgia. The woman died. She just died. She died on an airplane and she had a heart attack and she was younger than me. I said, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, you know, what a sign. Yeah. And he said, no, but the man still wants to buy the house, but we're just going to have to delay the closing a week if that's okay. I said, whatever he needs, I don't care. But the sad part of that whole story is, the woman, the guy's wife, who bought the house with him, wrote me a letter when they went under contract. I still have the letter. And she said that she loved my house so much because of my art, because she was from New Mexico. And I, I used to live in New Mexico at one point. And she said, but what really sealed the deal for me was you had the Virgin Mary statue in the same place, in the same corner of the bedroom than I do. And she said, that's what made me buy your house. She said, I've looked at homes everywhere. And she said, that's why we decided to buy the house. And it was very touching because I thought, yes. And we did go back after the evacuation up to Georgia. And I, I met the man. I finally met him face to face and talked to him a little bit. He and his daughter now live in that house. That gives you goosebumps. He was brave to move in there, was he? Yep. He came from New Jersey. Uh, but that letter just touched me so much. I, I, and then when I found out that she had passed away, she was coming back from a business trip and a heart attack. She just had a heart attack on a plane and died. And God bless her. Um, I, I, I keep those things like very close to me. Those are the little things that I love about life, right? Like just the little things that you really appreciate, especially when you get older, uh, what's important, and especially after the hurricane, what was really important. Yes, we are full-time here on the island. That's just a question for everybody. <laughs> what, what do you like about living on Pine Island, now that we're speaking about it? What's funny is, before the hurricane, I was, I was starting, when I first, okay, when I first got here, it was very kind of exciting, right? Because I had a, a pool and I could, you know, go in that pool and I could do what I wanted to do and, I went from like a 4,000 square foot house to a 1,000 square foot house, which was great. You know, I didn't have to worry about all the maintenance. And then as time went on, and of course that was during the COVID time, 
it became a little bit more frustrating. Even even though we were very fortunate that where we lived, we could be outside, you know, no matter if we were around people or not, we still had the ability to enjoy the sunshine and the healthy part of living in Florida. But right before the hurricane, I thought, I don't know. I don't know. Is this enough? Because I'm a person that needs purpose. I, I always probably will. My husband is more laid back. He's happy doing his thing. He likes going around helping people because he's very um, mechanically inclined. And I just thought, boy, I wish, I wish I had something to do. I wish I had more purpose. Should I have moved closer to my daughter and the grandkids? You know, and then the hurricane happened. And that's to answer your question. I liked the island before the hurricane, but I fell in love with the island after the hurricane because of what I saw in people. I mean, there's bad people and there's good people, but I really saw people giving everything to people. I mean, when I came back after evacuation, I couldn't believe food. I mean, the amount of food that was being cooked and given to people, ice trucks. Um, The first time I went to the Baptist church on 8th Avenue, they had all those supplies and people were just hand. I said, I don't, I don't want this. And they said, yes, you do. You want this, you need this. And I met the head of FEMA there and he said, listen, you pay taxes your entire life. He said, you're not asking. He said, you need it now. And that's a hard thing to admit, right, that you need help. So that's what I really love about the island. They have a sense of generosity and a sense of belonging. They don't exclude you. Some Sometimes, you know, there's always that little fight between the snowbirds and the, the full-time residents. But for the most part, if you're an Islander, you're an Islander, and, and they appreciate that. They understand your your way of thinking. You know, they're not people of means. They are the, the people that have lived on this island for generations live because it's the island. They they don't they don't want the affluent lifestyle. They want to be Islanders. They want to fish when they want to fish. They want to do what they want to do, and they're happy to get by with what they have, which you have to admit, it's a beautiful place. It's, it's very still untouched commercially. So what were or are some of your favorite places or, or are there places coming back that you're looking forward to, you know, what, what do you like to do on the Island or, you know, that's so sad that I mean, I don't even have a hobby on the Island, but, mm-hmm. um, I like, I like to walk as you well know. I like that. What I really got into when they looked for volunteers to get people signed up for the state, of course, there was FEMA. And then Governor DeSantis came up with um, Unite Florida, and they were looking for volunteers. And that's what really opened up my my world, because I got to know people here on the island. Because before that, I would do things here and there. I was trying to figure out where should I volunteer? I don't know. I mean, you know, I was dog walking. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you're a big lover of I dogs. Am. I thought that would come up with your hobby. But, just, but your dogs are beautiful. Oh, my dogs are like part of my life. So I, they're like not even a hobby now. <laughs> but 
I think the dog walking thing, it was just so far off the island. That's, that, that's one of the challenges, right? <clears throat> Living on the island is being just far enough away where there's a lot of traffic. The dog walking was great. However, there were so many people that were doing it that you kind of got in the way of other people. And it was more frustrating than helpful. So I kind of felt like I was in the way. Um, I went to work at Leoma Lovegrove's gallery for a little bit. I, I didn't enjoy, I love her work. I just did not enjoy, you know, the retail thing. So I felt kind of like at loose ends, you know, what do I do with myself? Well, you said you needed a purpose. I do. So, I really I mean, do. This, I think you found it, but I mean, I know you found it, you know, a real purpose to, um, what you wanted to do with the rest of your life. Well, I will tell you, I, I believe, and it was part of, part of our training. I would teach a lot of leadership things, um, internationally. And one of the things they talk about behavioral styles, but you always have to have a purpose. There's always the why, why to a person. And that's me. I need a purpose, whatever that purpose may be. I never thought about that. You know, when I was working, I thought, who wants to work all the time, right? Who, who wants, but you need that. I need that purpose. So when they were looking for volunteers, there were two attorneys at the Beacon of Hope. And one of which was an immigration, retired immigration attorney. So we laughed about that for a while. And the other one was a retired insurance attorney. But I met other volunteers that came there. There was just a small handful. Two people came from Punta Gorda every day. Yeah, they came because they felt, that's why I love these people, because they felt they needed to help people. One lady um, is here part-time, and she was a retired school teacher. And when I first met her, I thought, boy, she's so quiet. <laughs> not, not, and after you got to know her, it was hysterical, <laughs> because the people we would get in at the Beacon, it was, it was you never knew what you were going to get. Um, because it's just the way this island is, you know, there's no cutoff time for drinking. <laughs> yeah, there's no beginning or end. And I actually worked out of the Legion for a big part of it. And that really opened my eyes because I do, I do belong to the Legion. I don't go there a lot. I probably should go there more. But I got to know the commander and all the people there and, I remember my husband saying to me, you know, aren't they more concerned about their homes than the Legion? I said, no, because that's their, that's their people. That's their family. The every day. I mean, it was just so amazing getting to know these people. Uh, that, you know, they knew they had problems, obviously. But if they didn't have that, I mean, that was like their lifeline. They, they, that was their way of talking and, and getting all this. The first man I met there lost his house and his wife the night of the hurricane. So, I mean, I can't even imagine that. And they actually had a, a funeral service for her a few weeks after the hurricane. So just when you think you're like pretty devastated for what you went through, there's, there's so much. There's so much out there. 
And I don't think anybody wants to go through a natural disaster. I think we'd all vote for having been excluded from that. But I think what's been reinsuring to us, and I think you kind of alluded to this, is when everybody was outside working on their homes or in their yards. So I could, you could make an argument communities overused, you know, too much in today's society, but it really seemed to tighten up. I mean, from our perspective, and you saw the kindnesses and you saw the willingness to help even when their own properties or homes weren't in the best of shape. If there was something heavy, multiple people were doing that. I mean, I assume you saw much of the same kinds of things. Yes, that was in our neighborhood. Uh, it was amazing. I knew I knew some people here, really, um, you know, just talking to them, but I didn't know them. And, you know, just for myself, I, I didn't have a washing machine for months because we couldn't get the um, golf cart out of the garage. So, you know, I had two neighbors here say, please come here. Yeah, wash your clothes. You know, I, I don't care. I felt really funny about that because there were public washers and dryers, but they wanted it. They wanted to give that. And I, then I understand, you know, that I wanted the same thing. I wanted to help people too. Um, everybody in this neighborhood has been fantastic. I got to know my neighbors two doors down. You know, they had us for Thanksgiving. They had us for Christmas they had us for Easter. I mean, we've really gotten close in that respect because they felt they're by themselves. You know, you shouldn't be by yourself. And I think that's everybody's mindset here. You, you can't be by yourself. If you want to be by yourself, that's okay. But we want to help you because we care about you. And it's not that fake care. It's it's a really, truly nice thing. And I couldn't tell you how much money everybody does have in this neighborhood. I couldn't tell you if somebody was wealthy or not. I mean, obviously, there you have to be able to afford. This has gotten to be more expensive as time goes on. But nobody has that facade. Everybody has that down-to-earth, you know, kind of thing where we can laugh at the end of the day. And I remember saying to you, Joanna, thank you for being so kind. Because some, there, and there are some people that aren't, you know, there really aren't. But thank you, because we came back, or I came back after, and at first I was just like a deer in a headlight. It was, it was very devastating. We had about 18 inches of water, right? And I thought, how are we going to get past this? You know, all the money that you save, everything, you know, your whole career, your retirement. And then all of a sudden I realized, like, I wasn't alone. And I think that was a big deal. Everybody was going through something. It wasn't exactly the same, but everybody was having something go on. And we all, I think we all helped each other. I think we had to be more assertive with other people and just say, no, no, you need me to help you. Yeah. And, and, and we had a friend, I don't know how he did it. He would just appear and, and then help us. And I said, how did he do that? That's uncanny. Help us take down a tree or we would go and help other people. And it, it, we really, like you, we became a lot closer to our neighbors. Which is great. Yeah. Uh, and another reason I wanted to volunteer so badly. I worked for the government. I have hit every brick wall in my job possible. I have 
been through a lot in different aspects. So I understand the government. I understand their speak. I understand how to deal with it. So, you know, starting from the fact that FEMA wasn't here originally, they weren't physically here and people actually had to pick up their phones and try to apply over the phone. That's when I started calling senators and congressmen and say, look, you know, we're not in Fort Myers. You have a, you have a place there, but it might as well be across the country because people, A, don't have a car anymore, B, can't get off the island, and a lot of elderly people don't even have access to computers and don't even know how. Well, there wasn't even an internet in the beginning. Right, and that was the other thing was the communications, right? So the one person's office, Marco Rubio's office, they're like, we never thought about that. And I said, well, no, because you aren't here. You know, until you're here and see and, and see how far everything is, you can't just, you know, skip and jump down to Fort Myers because you can't. So I was advocating, and that, that's one of my favorite things to do is to advocate and, like, kind of push people along because there's a lot of fear with the government, um, a lot of fear with not doing the right thing or, or what's going to happen if I don't do this. Right. So I like to say, no, you know, we're going to do this. We're going to appeal this, or we're going to, it's not a big deal. We're going to do this. And a lot of people, I, I can't tell you how many people just cried, you know, because you have to hear the story. I mean, when they first had all us volunteers doing this, they thought it was going to be very quick. You know, here, answer this, this, this. Well, no. We'd spend two hours with somebody because they had to tell you this story. They had to. Who else are they going to tell? And then if, if you're telling it to somebody outside this area, they don't, they don't understand. I mean, we were on the news, what, maybe that week? And then that's it. I think it's interesting you mentioned government speak because although the documents or the forms or the websites are in technically in English, I don't think they're in everyday English, let alone people that have suffered a trauma. And one of the things we commented on, and I think you've alluded to it too, is so you had the damage at your own home, mm -hmm. but every time we looked outside, you saw more devastation. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, thank God most stuff has cleaned up now. But to your point, not only the time to make that trip, but you just drove along and you saw house after house and tree after tree that were down, et cetera. And it just compounded to the point where, and I think I remember you telling or sharing with us earlier that it was as simple as sometimes people check on the wrong box mm -hmm. or something, and that was not getting them the help that they need. So maybe if you can expand on that a little bit more sure. on, on how that got facilitated. And We'd get a lot of people coming in saying, you know, we were denied by FEMA from the beginning, and I'd say, in what way? A lot of times it was a misunderstanding that if they had insurance, they had to wait until the settlement, and then FEMA wanted to know what wasn't covered. But another aspect, like you were saying, on their form, on the applications, if you were doing it over the phone, and a lot of people did do it over the phone, and I don't know, they said they had insurance or they didn't have insurance, the person on the other end checked the, the wrong box. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's simple to do, 
but we were finding that more and more and more. And I said, so we would call FEMA on their behalf, have that person there and say, you know, this was done incorrectly. Oh, and this is, by that time, FEMA had been here, have them come to the tent. And for a lot of people, that was scary to face people because some, you know, some people aren't the most people friendly, you know, government workers. You would think, I, and I remember talking to the guy from FEMA, I said, you'd think you get the most compassionate people, right? You get the best. He started laughing because most of the FEMA people are on call. They're not full-time workers. So you basically sign up, they train you, and then when a disaster happens, they deploy you. And so a lot of times, you know, they don't they don't understand or they're not sure or they can't answer your question. Uh, I had a lot of compassionate people I talked to. I was lucky. A lot of FEMA workers were very, very understanding and very helpful. Uh, same with the Small Business Association, which was another entity, you know, that people dealt with too. But I felt... And it's funny when I think back to the beginning of all this, there were a couple of times when I really thought I was going to lose my mind. I'm going, really? I don't believe these people are talking like this. Or, you know, I don't think I can do this. I just don't. I'm tired of doing this. And then you kind of step outside and where I was staying in Georgia, that's where I was. And I kind of just took a walk, just a little walk, and then came back and then started over again. But I think it's worse, to your point, if you were here, because you could get outside, but what are you looking at? You're looking at even more stuff and more sadness and more frustration. So it's hard to get your mind set on money. I mean, that's what it came down to, is trying to find money to repair your home, if you could repair your home. Uh, I knew nothing about a surge. I had no idea what a surge was. You know, I knew wind, I'd assumed wind, but I never thought about a surge and how much damage it could do in it. <laughs> it was amazing how much damage it did. We were, I think we were fortunate as well. I mean, we, we had a lot of damage, but we were able to recoup. A lot of people couldn't. So, yeah, I I was lucky that I had that background that... It makes you resilient. It really does. Uh, after a while, you just get to the point where, in my case, I compartmentalize a lot. That's my personality. I tend to like put things in boxes, and when it comes out later, <laughs> it comes out. But it's how I deal with things. So I'm able to deal with the issue at hand instead of, you know, getting the emotion involved. I have to like suppress it. And then go. It was so great of you to share those talents that you had because we really needed it on the island. I know a lot of people we met, they said, oh, oh, well, I, I, I'm, I'm not as bad off as this person. So they weren't going to do anything at all. <laughs> or they were rejected be, for whatever reason. The, a lot of the systems, the computer systems weren't working right with the agencies you were talking to. And they'd say, well, I was denied and oh, that's it. I'm not getting anything. That kind of, and then that wasn't even the case. You even told us you have to, um, what did you call it? Appeal. Yeah. Who who knows to appeal unless you hadn't said, 
Oh, no, you just have to appeal. A lot of people um, would get letters. And that was the other thing. They wouldn't go back online and check their accounts because FEMA did not communicate with you via phone or letters to your home. You had to go online. So they'd send you a letter and say, okay, you're claiming this. We need this additional information. Or we're going to give you $5,000, but if that's not enough, you can appeal this decision. Well, everybody's thinking appeal, right? It's such a big legal term. You know, what, how do I appeal? You know, and some people let it go past the 60-day mark. I did. I know I did. I let it go past. And that's when I spoke to, if, if I didn't have the relationship with the FEMA director, he said, it doesn't matter. I'm encouraging people to appeal no matter what. Personally, I think that there was so much still left on the table that, you know, people didn't get what they should have by whatever, whatever happened, whatever errors happened. Um, it's just like the Red Cross. I wouldn't know anything about the Red Cross except I sat with them at the Legion and I spoke to the head of the Red Cross there and she said it was such an error in the beginning because we did flyovers. And you can't see the damage, especially in homes that had internal damage. And so she said, we should have been on the island sooner. And that's when they came back and they were at the Legion. And that's why I encouraged, because just like you were saying, Joanna, even neighbors here, we're not that bad. Somebody needs it more than us. Well, yeah, there. that's true, but you've been through, you, you've been through it. I mean... Whether you believe it or not, whether you realize it or not, this was a huge traumatic event. It was a huge dramatic storm. You know, it was probably one of the worst in our country's history. You've got to, I think, I think the first thing you have to do is realize you were a victim of this. Nobody wants to be a victim, but you were a victim. You had no choice. You were a victim. Now, you can choose to stay the victim or you can help yourself. And that's where you have to go. Yeah, I think the other thing, at least from our perspective, is this, these, or, and, you know, and it's not good or bad, but the alphabet soup of the government and which agencies are there to help you. So it, not only the emotion that you talk about, but also the, not even the knowing where to start per se, like which organizations might we be qualified or your pride that you alluded to as well we're not that bad off or we can figure out a way to fund it ourselves. So just even that help to let people know that things are available from different organizations. And you th mentioned small businesses. So I think we got one letter saying that, you know, we could apply for a loan, but it didn't make sense up front because, well, we're not a small business. We're a retired couple, you know, um, but obviously somewhere within their uh, remit, you know, is the ability to loan after natural disaster. So, I don't think that you want to spend your life trying to research what you get after a natural disaster, but one, you know, happens. I think that's the other huge chasm for people is they don't even know where to start. I think that's where I have to, you know, if I were, if I were any agency, whoever was involved, I would look back and you, you would think that you know, Katrina was one that really sticks in my mind. 
you think that that was a huge learning curve, right? But you have to think these people, us, were just, even you're shocked. You're shocked. Who who knew that Sanibel Island was going underwater? I didn't. You know, I was one of those people, and I think I told Joanna the story, when we paid the house off, and, and originally we had a mortgage, so we had flood insurance and we had wind insurance because you had to. So I paid it off in 2021, and I said, I'm not going to pay this flood insurance. It's so high. It's really high. And Sanibel would have to be underwater for us to get any water. Yeah. <laughs> Famous last words. So kind of it's your fault. <laughs> but, you know, who knew? Who knew that Sanibel was actually going to go underwater? <clears throat> and, and then the insurance companies are a whole different aspect. And, they, and that's not my frustration because obviously I didn't have to deal with insurance companies. We did have homeowners. We just didn't have for name storms the flood and the wind, um, our car, our one vehicle was totaled because it was in the storm. And I will say our car insurance carrier was excellent. I mean, there was just no question it was done. But I can't even imagine what people, that was the other thing people were going through is dealing with their insurance companies before they could even begin to do anything, you know. Yeah, you did how many, countless days and hours just, trying to follow up yeah. and then, and then being, and the, the, the people they would, that would come out were obviously new and then they would leave, you know, so many of them just quit after a couple of weeks, they couldn't handle it. And I heard of people having to start over with pictures. When you said flood insurance, all I can think about is we have flood insurance, but it didn't matter. We didn't, we didn't really get anything for flood insurance. And to your point, I hope the uh, look back, or the review happens because, thank God, the Army Corps of Engineers tarped our roof. But we lived in limbo, and I understand there were like well over 70,000 people that applied to that program, and that's probably a fraction of what could have used their help. But every time I logged back on, once the Internet came out, it was like pending or something. So just the communication, you know, I didn't expect somebody to come right away, but I wanted to know that I was in the queue. And that, you know, I was on the list and somebody would become, which they eventually did a, did a fantastic job and we never got a drip of water in the house, thank God. But, um, you know, that's the kind of thing that I think, other than the knowledge of organizations that you might need to work with, the fact that telling somebody that's in the middle of a natural disaster to go on the internet to check their status is not the most, because for a while, as you well know, Everybody was on their mobile phones, and I'm sure some of the cell towers were not at 100%, if even up. And then everybody's on their mobile phones trying to talk to family, trying to get insurance worked out. And getting to a website just was completely impractical. Um, but having said that, you've mentioned a couple of organizations. What all organizations have you been volunteering with and or assisting people with, just so we get the whole breadth of your contribution? Well, it was it was originally, the the, the beginning was the beacon of hope. So I worked with the volunteer, well, the two women that were actually part of the Beacon of Hope and on their board of directors. And then Unite Florida was the other one that the state developed. It was kind of like their answer to FEMA. FEMA is a federally funded agency and Unite Florida was a state funded agency. And I think the reason that came into being 
was because of the trailers. You know, there was that fight about, you know, I'm not going to put a trailer here because you're in a flood zone. You only can have it for six months. Well, people were looking like, what are we supposed to do? So then Governor DeSantis said, no, we're going to come up with our program. And so between the two agencies, people have gotten trailers if they can put it on their property. In Mount Lachey, unfortunately, a lot of people cannot because it's such a small area. Um, there was the Small Business Association. There was the Red Cross. There was, on FEMA's website, and again, I'm used to government stuff, there is a whole litany of things that you could look at. If you were a veteran, you could go to Veteran Affairs. The Legion gave money to its members if they needed it. They would give out maybe two or $3,000 a person so that was another thing people reached to. That That's another reason why people have such a high community in those organizations because they have that common bond. And veterans are huge on the island, I'm finding, huge. So if you were a government worker, you know, you could go and reach out to OPM. I mean, there was, there was a lot. But just here, here on the island, FEMA, Unite Florida, the Red Cross, the Small Business Association, um, the debris, the debris pickup was huge. That's winding down now. The Datsun, yeah. beautiful Datsun yeah. trucks. They're winding down. They stopped taking applications as of March 29th. So anything now, if you didn't, you know, put it online with them because FEMA was paying for it, it's on you. So that was another thing people were not clear about. And, and I have to say that was a, that one of the biggest problems during the hurricane was communication. On Facebook, Kevin Russell was a person, is a person that really had facts. He was putting out facts and it was a godsend to me, especially when you're not here to find out what exactly is going on because there's so many rumors. There's still so many rumors. You know, I go and I look on Facebook as a huge community, right? So you know, there's things that people talk about and what you can do and what you can't do. I wish we had a more solid, we used to call them like a coop plan. I wish we had more solid coop plan on the island. And, and it's hard because we're not incorporated or mm -hmm. unincorporated, which I don't know if we'll ever be incorporated because that takes a lot of assets to do that. Like Sanibel is, Fort Myers Beach is. But we don't have our own government. So you would think maybe the, what is it, the Greater Pine Island Civic Association will come up with a better coup, you know, with key people in place. You know, if this happens, and then you run through tabletop exercises. I wish, and then they're really kind of, sometimes they get to be annoying because <laughs> we did a lot with them for the government. But it was better to be proactive than reactive uh, I remember one time we had something we thought was bird flu coming in on ships. And it's like, now that sounds really stupid, but when you have a bunch of dead birds coming in on a, a vessel, what do you do? And I'm talking like, how do we get the ambulances down there? How do we get, you know, there's, there's little tiny things. And who knew that the road was going to break up like that into the island? Who knew that? Nobody. Who knew everybody would be cut off who stayed you know, and, and I was in Georgia thinking, oh, my God, 
if they don't open that road up, how am I going to get back? But to your point on the the rumors and, and the craving for facts, um, my favorite one was that the bridge was washed out. Well, technically, it was the roads up to the bridges, and yes, the island was impassable uh, until that got corrected and so forth like that. But uh, it was hard enough being here. I can't imagine being in Georgia and trying to s sort through all that and uh, have some sense of, uh, well, there was really no sense of calm, I guess. That was kind of crazy. But you wanted something that you could kind of hang on to. And, uh, yeah, the, just the misinformation and the lack of communication. And so to your point, yeah, any kind of planning going forward, so at least um, you can't stop it from happening, but you can at least be responsive. Right. And I think that... You know, I'm sure the commissioners in Lee County have their thing going on. But again, the island is so unique that just like Fort Myers Beach, you you have to have boots on the ground here. I, I hate using that term, but that's, that's what I use. And you have to have these drills here. And I know they have groups um, with the commission. There's a commissioner, Kevin Ruan, who comes here and they do meetings. And, and it's open. I think it's open. Sometimes it's not open to, but we really do need to have a coop in place. If this happens, you know, A happens, then B, C, D, E, F. You know, you have to be able to do this. Now, this just happened to us last year. What do we do next time? How do we do this? I mean, it was one of the worst storms possible. What do we do? I know personally, you know, I will have sandbags. I mean, I I used I was so arrogant. I have to tell you, I was so arrogant with this storm. I've been through two other hurricanes in Georgia, but they were like category one. I mean, it was nothing like this. And I was very arrogant thinking, ah, yeah, I will be this queen of sandbags learning how to, I don't know if it'll help, but, you know, I hope it would help some. I'll know what a go bag is. I mean, I should know better, right? I should have been more prepared to go. We, we waited till the very last minute to go. And I brought very little, I mean, cause I'm thinking, ah, yeah, we'll be back next day. No, it took at least a week, you know, just to get the road open up. And then I came even later because I had the two dogs. Um, if I wouldn't have had a really good friend in Georgia, a couple good friends in Georgia and the man that I worked with, all these years, gave us his truck to use so Mario could come, my husband could come back here. And then he gave us his RV that we lived in for three months. Yeah. If it, adorable. it was beautiful. It's, it, and that's just how he rolls. But, you know, if it weren't for that, yeah, I, I'm very, I'm very fortunate. I don't even know how to thank people. I, I mean, thank you just seems kind of empty, right? I wish I had all the money in the world. I could just give it to people and say, thank you, you know, to rent a place or rent a trailer. It's, it's like three or $4,000 a month. And so we were extremely fortunate. You know, the contractors that we had were great. There were, there were a lot of fly-by-nights. That was another thing I saw in this neighborhood with a lot of the older, older, I'm old, but even older than that people, you know, because I think you're so devastated and someone knocks at your door and says, Hey, we'll help you give us $20,000 and we'll be back. And they never came back. So I decided we were doing local only, not, not that they're 
always great, but we were very fortunate that we had good people, honest people come in and help us get through whatever we were getting through. But looking at it now, there's so much that I would have done differently. And I, I probably should go to one of those meetings, you know, to talk about these coops. But those tabletop exercises are so important, even if we did them like four times a year, because it has to be muscle memory. It has to be, you know, if this happens, then how do we do this? How do you get sick people off the island? How do you do this? I mean, Williamson Brothers got people off. But that was by the grace of God, right? Um, people were just getting boats here and there to come back on the island. So I think if they were more organized, it wouldn't be as scary. And and the thing is, you have to include people. I don't know if they've been planning anything. I don't know if they've had planning. Uh, I know they have meetings. The Greater Pine Island Civic Association does have meetings. I've been to a couple where they talk about incorporation I think that that subject is probably a little bit too late because things are happening right now. But we need to protect ourselves, not just our homes, but we have to come up with plans. I mean, what if whoever, I don't even know who made the decision in the beginning to say this island is uninhabitable for six months. I don't know who made that initial. I know that the, the commissioners voted for it. That was the story I got after the fact. And, you know, how do you deal with that? If that would have went through, if they would have stopped, I mean, you you were here, right? You stayed, but we were gone. So how do you do this? How My house would have been done, obviously. No, oh, did you leave too? You know, we left. We, we've been okay. in too many so, hurricanes. We leave. Okay. But we were just over, in, okay. you know, in the Fort Lauderdale area over there. And when we saw on TV, when, as soon yeah, as they were right. saying looting, yeah. um, and we have a barky dog, no, we're coming back. And thank goodness for DeSantis because he said, no, we would have been destroyed. All these homes would have been destroyed with black mold and they, they, uh, because everyone. Believe it or not, crime still rolls. Yeah. Even in the, in fact, they probably like it more in the face of disaster. Uh, and that's where, yes, we were very fortunate to have a governor that had better foresight and said, no, I, I think we're going to do it in three days. You know, we're just going to get yep. this built and we're going to be done. And he, and he, and he did it. And he had all the, uh, like the power guys, what did he call them? When you go out to the mailbox, you're going to see one in yeah. your yard. What the, I forget what you call those guys that repair the power. Yeah, I know. But he did FPL, it. well, we don't have FPL, but FPL was huge all through Cape Coral and Fort Myers. Yeah, we were very fortunate. Greater Pine Island Water Authority was great, you know, because they didn't charge us until after the first of the year. We had a lot of good things, but they're not solid. Like, we, I believe that you have to get this down because what if Governor DeSantis isn't here anymore? What if you have different entity? What if you have a different administration? You know, these are things that shouldn't be, but are. They are factors and you know, it's really, and I hope that we never have to go through this again. I hope not to this extent, but it, it's certainly something that I've become more aware of and everybody here. I mean, it, it's sad we're losing people. We're losing neighbors that are selling. I just spoke to one of our 
people down on Brachi, and she's under contract, going to Punta Gorda. Because, you know, when you're older, I don't even know how these people, especially in their 80s, you know, they're in their mid-80s, they lose their home or their home is so destroyed. They have, I mean, who has the energy, number one, you know, to even, how am I going to start over again? If you don't have resources like family, what are you going to do? So that's why I think there should be more planning uh, on the emergency side of it. So what, what if people um, still need help? What, what would be your advice to them today? Right now, we, what we did, we slowed down. We used to be at the office Mondays and Wednesdays and sometimes Fridays. But because traffic has slowed down, we decided it would be by appointment. So if you go to the Beacon of Hope on their door, It'll have a number that you call, or you can go inside the office and tell them that, you know, you need help with whatever, whatever related to the disaster. And they'll reach out to one of the two women that I worked with. And then I'm still here. A couple of the volunteers are are part-time, but I said, you know, I'm more than happy to come back and help people do what we need to do. So there's still that, the Beacon of Hope. I think the Beacon of Hope even still has... On Fridays, they called it a coffee clutch clutch, um, for people to talk about the issues that they're going through as far as their emotionally um, PTSD kind of related issues from the hurricane. And there were two psychologists running that group, which is key. Uh, whether, you know, I, I, I don't think there's one person that went through this that didn't have some kind of psychological effect. Somebody just told me a story the other day. A couple stayed that were off of Sanibel Boulevard. The woman is so traumatized, she won't come back on the island. Her and her husband sold the home as is, didn't care because it was so bad. I mean, I can't even imagine water rising. They lost both their dogs, you know, because you can't, you think you can handle water, but you can't handle water because it comes hard and fast, right? And this storm was not forgiving at all. So yeah, I think that's still going on there. As far as getting items that you need, appliances, I know some people are still, you know, wanting appliances or furniture. You can reach out to, the Beacon's been a very good source of information. I know the Matt Lachey hookers did a lot with building supplies. And, and, but, they all kind of work together in that respect. But I have such a big respect for the Beacon of Hope because I didn't realize how much they did over there. It looks like a tiny little strip mall, but it it's amazing the, the meals that they give out, the money that they give, especially for like if you can't afford your medical issues. It, there's a lot that goes on there. So the best thing to do, you go to the office, there's caseworkers there and, and they're able to direct you what you need to do. Yeah, they'll tell you, oh, you need to call right. this guy or this is how you right. get a trailer. Yeah, that's yeah, nice. it's a It's an amazing group. I, I never realized how far reaching and the people on the board are very, um, they're influencers. You know, they, they, they have the means to reach out to whatever is needed. So I would obviously say, you know, beacon of hope. I know FEMA's still at the VFW. 
I know there's a small contingency of people there that you can still go to. And there may be an SBA person there too. Um, the SBA was a good thing. I mean, the rates were low, the interest rates were low, but it was a loan and you did have to pay that back. Okay. Well, that might be good for some people. Yeah. As long as if it, if it went over $25,000, then you had to give your house as collateral, which is tough, you know? So a lot of people may have needed more than 25, but it's hard to, you know, and I have no, I have no knowledge of how loans work through the banks um, or lines of credit. I've never done it before, but I, I guess in comparison with the interest rate, it was relatively low with the Small Business Association. Any any plans to travel now that this is over? <laughs> you know, or? it's funny. I my daughter had um, I planned to go back. My daughter lives in Texas, so I planned to go there when she had her third child, right around the storm, and I couldn't go. So I finally got to see the baby in January, which is a great thing. But I am going to be going um, in May, beginning of May. I have three very good friends. I mean, very good friends I've known since I was probably four years old back in Pennsylvania. And we're going to start doing a girl's trip once a year because I think it's important that we not only just visit each other at our homes, but we need to get away. Because life is short, right? We know we're all getting older, and I think it's a good thing to reconnect with people. Other than that, I I really don't have any plans to travel. The COVID thing still has loomed. Well, thank you very, oh God, very thank you. much. I, I'm this very so honored oh. that you even wanted to talk to me. Oh, this was so enjoyable. I could go on and tell you a story and probably need like a five-part series on. <laughs> it could be. On things what you don't want idea. to know. No, no, no. We could have a whole bunch of... <laughs> things I can't tell you, but I could. <laughs> yeah, well, technically, when you separate, you're not supposed to talk about things, but some things are just too good to talk. I mean, there are things you never thought you would talk about your entire life. That's probably why we're all crazy. Yeah. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed our Pine Island Experience podcast. If you have any ideas for us, people to interview, or any comments please feel free to email them to us at pineislandexperience at gmail.com. That's pineislandexperience, all one word, at gmail.com. Don't forget to like us, and you may subscribe to this podcast using all the major catchers like Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Thanks again for listening, and remember, island life is a constant vacation. We'll see you on the next podcast.